I think the second day is the hardest. It always has been for me. Which means that it just gets better from now on. <laughs> My guess is that there has been during this day a lot of thinking, some sore knees, probably enough back pain to last the rest of the year. Some frustration and some thoughts about how, why did I do this? How can I get out of here with dignity? With dignity. That's very important. But it would mean you'd have to sneak out. My guess also is, is that there has been, along with those experiences, maybe, there, maybe there's been some joy and some moments of brief glimpses of peace. I haven't talked with anyone who was ecstatic yet today. <laughs> there, there were... Uh, a few tears, and probably some emotion that came along with the body experiences and the, the chaotic mind trips. Anger, grief, frustration, fear maybe. All of that being totally normal, as a matter of fact. So here we are, the end of the second day. It's interesting about emotion. Emotions are fascinating to me. You know, Chogyam Trungpa used to say that the egos, the ego self's foot soldiers are thoughts, but that emotions are the ego's generals, more powerful, more demanding. It's hard to avoid them, you can't. Emotions are an interesting kind of teamwork between mental phenomena and physical sensations. They, they go together. You get both, and that accounts for the power of emotion, probably. You probably don't know that something really fantastic happened to you when you were about six months old. There arose, there happened in the mind, a movement 
the formation of a point of view, really. A sense of separate individual self began to form, the rudiments of that, around six months of age. It happens to all of us. And out of that movement in the mind, that, that point of view, that change, arises all of the potential dramas, sufferings and happinesses of our later lives. This, this me, this little me, this separate sense of self takes its place, its powerful position. And that position depends upon this point of view that, that the me, I am living inside this skin, this form, and you are other and you're all out there. The separation between me and other happens with that individual sense of self arising. That separation between the me, I like to call that the me, and when I speak of the me I'm referring to this point of view, this, this notion of being a, an entity, that, that separation, that gulf between the inside of the skin and the outside of the skin is our real, our wound, our fall from the garden. Because when the separation occurs, that leaves this little sense of me in a position of loneliness kind of growing sense of alienation and differentness from everything else. It's as though we start living behind a guard-all shield and we don't ever quite touch the world or others. And as we become more and more self-conscious and aware of that, there's a kind of a sadness, a sweet longing that you may very well be familiar with, that arises quite naturally. What also arises in that space of between the inside of the skin and the outside, in that separation, there is plenty of, of position for fear to happen. Because with the outside being different and the self being separate from other, there can be danger from the other. And then we start setting into place pretty automatically defense mechanisms, uh, all kinds of ways of shoring up the walls and digging the moats. Because the me is very vulnerable, delicate in its position, not having any real substantiation for its existence. You see, it's a point of view, a notion, an idea, really, 
that, that identifies with itself in such a powerful way. That separation then brings with it a longing for union that haunts us throughout our days. A sense of it isn't quite right. It isn't, it isn't completed yet. There's something to be done. Always that, that impulse to get something accomplished, to do something. It's not finished. It isn't quite right. It's not satisfactory yet. <clears throat> we all experience it. And it has its source in the belief, in the identification with separate self. And that, by the way, is the curriculum of our world. It's the program. We all experience it. And we not only experience it, we operate from that. And it isn't really like a pathology or a bad thing I'm talking about, because it does a lot of good for us, that me too, you know. Works for survival, makes a living, gets a job, creates a family, does good things for others, becomes selfless sometimes, learns to meditate, hoping that with meditation that problem of alienation will be solved. That's why you're here, isn't it? <laughs> then the obstacles. <clears throat> it's said that when the Buddha had his awakening, he kind of looked around at the world and saw that the, all of humanity is asleep kind of under a blanket of comatose. Asleep, unaware of true nature. In other words, that we don't know who we are really because of this separation, the alienation. He called it ignorance. I think it's probably akin to original sin, but I like ignorance better. Somehow it's like less said, you know, you're not your fault if it's ignorance, and we all share it. The sense of unsatisfactoriness that comes with the separation and is natural to it is what causes the ultimately what the Buddha called dukkha or suffering. And today we've all been experiencing suffering. The very natural discomfort of sitting still and looking carefully within honestly, as much as possible, to see how it actually is. 
Now this this me is uh, an appropriate it, it, it appropriates things. Thoughts occur in the mind, and the me says those are mine. Thoughts are me; they belong to me. Emotions happen, and the me says those are mine; they belong to me. And before long. We believe that, and we go about in the world thinking that we are our thoughts, and that we are our emotions. And the same with the body, that we are the body. And that's the ignorance that the Buddha spoke about. It's, remember that this separation is really a point of view in the mind. No one has ever found the thing, the me. To be real, although it seems like it is, because the, the thoughts seem to refer to us as diabolical. Really, you know, we, they're talking about us and to us all the time. Yeah, but as the practice goes on and we get older and more and more wise, hopefully, we begin to see. That those thoughts just roll on and on like a fountain. They come out of the emptiness of the mind, appear out of nowhere, and disappear all by themselves. And that there isn't really any me creating them, and there isn't anyone behind them, and there isn't anyone who owns them. And it's the same with the emotions. Very strange, mysterious. This being a human being, the me latches on to experience and owns it. There's another characteristic that it has this this point of view. In that it is adversarial, pretty much. Most of the time, it's adversarial to reality. It looks at the world from that position of separateness with judgment, and the conclusion that it comes to is that things need to be fixed. It isn't okay the way it is. There's something lacking, as I said. There's a dissatisfaction. We need to do something to make it better. Adversarial. And in that position, there's never real, real peace of mind. There isn't any real deep happiness. Happiness comes for moments, brief periods of time, usually when the me receives what he or she. Has been wanting. Happiness comes, pleasure comes for a little bit, but it doesn't last because everything is permanent here. I mean, impermanent here. <laughs> Actually, that would be horrible if everything was. In Whoa. And because of that impermanence. 
that me looks around and sees that there is no security here at all. And then fear arises. There is nothing to hang on to. Not in truth. Everything is disappearing. Possessions disappear. People die. Pets die, go away. Relationships end. Fords break down. Refrigerators stop. The eggs go bad, you know. It all happens like that. There's no security whatsoever here. And then there's one other aspect of the me that's very interesting to me, in that one of its primary duties is to make distinctions about experience. And the distinctions are very basic. This is pleasant. This is unpleasant. Or the third possibility is indifferent, neutral. Everything that arises in the life of the organism, whatever it is, everything that arises is judged immediately. It's reflexively, obviously, done without awareness. This is pleasant. I like it. This is not so good. Make it go away. The bipolarity of our world. We live in a, a bipolar world, a world of shadows. For every up there's a down, and for every in there's an out, and for every pleasant there's an unpleasant. And emotions have their birth in those distinctions. With pleasantness, there's the attraction, I want it. I want more of it. And then there can be grasping and holding on, clinging. And then there can be greed arising out of that and possessiveness. Yeah. And then there can be dissatisfaction and anger when that possessive quality of whatever it is is lost. And then with greed, if what we value so much and want is lost, then arises disappointment in a sense of poverty and perhaps anger. And the emotion jealousy can happen then because if I'm without and someone else looks like they're with, they have it, Jealousy comes up, and the me suffers terribly. Jealousy is one of the most painful of the experiences that we're heir to. With the opposite, the aversive, I don't like it. If it's clung to, if there is clinging, an identification with it, can evolve into disgust, can evolve into a repulsion, can evolve into anger, really. We have a lot of trouble with anger. For many, many years, 40 years or something like that, I was a psychiatrist, psychotherapist. And the most difficult emotion that people encounter that I discovered in my practice was Dealing with anger, even more difficult than grief, 
Out of anger can come rage. Rage. Where the, the aversion is so huge that it takes on an energy that takes over awareness totally. And one can become totally swept away in rage. We lose ourselves in emotions very easily. I've always been interested in them. I guess because of the power and the mysteriousness of them. In fact, I'd like to tell you a couple of stories about how I became interested in emotions and why they're so fascinating to me in such a study. Happened, it really began when I was, oh, about 30-something, early, 32. I had come out of the military. I'd been in the Army seven years, if you can believe that. I was a psychiatrist in the, in the Army and was training in psychoanalysis. I was training to be a psychoanalyst. And uh, last night, Wes said something about, he quoted Jung, who said, if you're depressed, you're too high in your mind. Well, I was way high on my mind. <laughs> Psychoanalysis was really not doing it for me. I realized that one time, lying on the couch, and I looked over at the wall, and there was a crack in the plaster, and found myself meditating on that crack in the plaster because I was so tired of talking about my story, my history, <laughs> over and over and over again. So it was about when I was at my most desperate, up in my mind, that I realized that I had no emotions, that I wasn't free and I wasn't happy, and uh, I had no emotional life whatsoever. I was deadened inside, and that I was really compliant to the sort of upbringing I had had in the 30s and 40s, early 50s. You know, In those days, to have strong emotion was not really desirable. In fact, to show emotion was much more objectionable than it is now in those days, in, at least in the, the culture that I came from. So I'd learned well and had stuffed everything over the years. And uh, it was while in that state that I fell into the clutches through no doing of my own, I'm certain. I fell into the clutches of two old shaman healers, a man and a woman. And uh, they kind of lifted me out of the street and dragged me into their auras. And they made a pact between them that they were going to crack me open. <laughs> this, is the, this is a true story. And they did that because I was so closed that I was a challenge to them. <laughs> so the man 
He's in his 70s. Long white beard. A lot of bald, long, flowing out, sticking out white hair. Always dressed in a terry cloth jumpsuit that zipped all the way up the front. Smoked constantly. He was always to be seen in a cloud of smoke. And he smelled bad, too. And not only that, he fancied himself a great lover. And he was a real terrible lecher, chasing the women all the time, thinking that... And actually, he was so powerful that he attracted a lot of people. He was also not nice. He was kind of a very unpleasant person quite often, and he, one of his pleasures was to humiliate people and uh, insult people. Now, it sounds awful, I know. <laughs> but the fact is, that behind all that veneer, he was so compassionate and had such a huge heart that he radiated power, he radiated compassion, actually, when you could see him back of all the smoke. <laughs> and he grabbed me and actually he instigated my becoming his apprentice. I became the sorcerer's apprentice. Now remember, I'm, uh, I'm, I've seen the photos of myself in, in a home movie that I'll tell you about. In those days, I looked like um, an insurance salesman. And, and now, there's nothing wrong with insurance salesmen, but I, I looked very uh, tight. And uh, I looked kind of uh, pale, <laughs> like I didn't get very much exercise, which was probably the truth. I don't know what he saw and why he did that, other than that I was a challenge to him. I asked him one day uh, why he chose me, and he said, Ah, oh, I saw you were still alive. <laughs> and as I look back on that now, that was really a compliment. <laughs> because I was among the dead that Wes described last night. He worked in a way that was quite unique in, that, in those times. He worked with small groups of people, and we'd sit in a circle in his very dramatic house by the ocean. And people from all over the world came, different countries. And uh, he would sit at one end of the, the oval, really, in a big chair, and there would be an empty chair next to him. And the game was that when you were courageous enough to encounter him, you got up from your seat and walked over and sat down next to him. And uh, I saw very early on that if I'm going to be this apprentice to the sorcerer, I've got to play the game. So at one point I got up shaking in my boots. I mean, it was really a, it was a very frightening thing to do because I had seen people fall apart and disintegrate before my very eyes in encounters with him. He had the ability to pierce with his eyes and with his mind and touch the most tender places 
and bring them forth for everybody to look at, particularly the person who was doing the suffering. That's how he worked. He brought it all into more and more obvious awareness, everything that you were hiding from. He was radical, really radical. So I, I uh, took my seat next to him, and the next thing I knew, I'm looking into his eyes, and they're huge and luminous. And I kind of fell into his eyes, and the next thing I knew after that was I was saying something about my mother, and I had a really difficult relationship with my mother. It was quite unhealed at that point. And uh, the next thing I knew after that is I'm talking to my mother, and she appeared there in front of me. And then uh, I was engulfed in white rage. I, all I can remember is the whiteness. And uh, I don't know how, how long that lasted. He only said a couple of things to me. Mostly it was his presence, his clear mind looking through my facade that, that did it. And uh, this whole thing was filmed to my chagrin, <laughs> because what happened was that uh, when I came around to some sort of semblance of consciousness again, I had broken up the furniture, I'd broken chairs, I was bleeding, and totally stunned. I mean, I was a meek person, never felt anything like that. But I had exploded into this rage that had been compressed within me for a lifetime at least. And there was an, a, a gigantic relief. Well, that film now is in the psychology archives at the university, uh, yeah, Sonoma University. And I'm hoping against all odds that you'll never go there and look at it. <laughs> I've seen it. I turned into a raving maniac just so quickly. And what that taught me was how much I had energetically living within me, wanting to burst forth. And even in the, in the form of rage, it was okay with me because I felt immediately afterwards uh, like I could embrace the whole world. And I floated around for days afterwards, opening my heart and loving everybody. I was released from some terrible burden in an instant by this shaman who's become a legend in, his, in our days now, but hardly anyone remembers him except for a certain field, the psychological field. Amazing experience. That was my introduction to emotion. I had not felt my body or my spirit before or my heart before, and it happened in an instant. So, of course, you can realize I was um, well, disoriented for quite a while, but always with a sense of I had opened something, Pandora's box, and it was a good thing. It was the beginning of a long exploration into my inner life, well, his friend was a woman who was there with him. 
She also has become a legend over the years. And uh, <laughs> they, they had a, an agreement between them that they were going to double-team me and uh, keep opening the opening. Well, her, her thing was uh, she worked with the body. She's a stout, really sweet-looking, gray-haired lady, always had a hibiscus flower in her hair. But she had a kind of a no-nonsense, don't-fool-around-with-me demeanor, and I was you know, very cautious around her. And uh, one day I decided that, um, well, I didn't decide. They told me that I had an appointment with her. And I began uh, a work with her that involved her digging her knuckles into my flesh, her elbows, her pounding me with her fists, and uh, putting my body through such a terrible ordeal. The pain was so incredible. It was really painful. At one point I said, Jesus Christ. And she said, no, I'm just his handmaiden. <laughs> That's what she was like. And didn't stop for a moment. But after the ordeal was over, there would be a sense of walking about a foot off the earth. I'm so light and floating, my spirit was free. The body was no longer a solid weight. It was a uh, floating molecules in union with everything else, the trees and the birds, and it was that kind of thing, you know. A healer, both of them, profound healers, shamans, teachers, great teachers. Well, there came a time in my relationship with her when she was training me in her methods and teaching me how to do what she does, did. And uh, this was in a motel room with the drapes drawn and the doors locked on the corner of Presidio and California Street in San Francisco, second floor of the Laurel Lodge Inn. <laughs> That's where the training happened because she was afraid the police would come. And it wasn't entirely unrealistic because the whole thing was so bizarre. <laughs> and any kind of work like that in those days reeked of sex, you know, body sex. So she was very cautious and always insisted on locking the door. And one day she has me there on the bed, splayed out on the and I was, uh, she was uh, sinking her elbows into the inside of my left thigh and I'm in agony during that and something happened that altered the rest of my days and I, forever and ever. I think the pain of the experience was so concentrating that there was a, a, a transcendence of time and uh, I came into the now for perhaps for the very first time. And in the now, there is also the past and everything, you know, and the now includes everything. The now is really outside of time. It's the zero point between the past and the future. And that happened in, in an instant, and I said to her, I'm seeing ropes, I'm seeing ropes. 
and uh, yeah, she didn't want to deal with psychological, mental stuff. She was the body worker, so she didn't respond. And then what happened was the next thing I knew, I had, uh, I was living in another time. I was a child, a small child, four. I knew it was four, and uh, I was uh, locked in a shack, uh, a dirt floor. My f uh, have vivid. Uh, sensations of my face being pressed against the dirt in the floor. I was nude and I was being abused horribly. And uh, then all of this happened in a split second. And then whoever had brought me there left and I was locked in. I was alone. And uh, I experienced another level of deep emotion. I, I was so humiliated by what had happened, and so in grief by the loss of my innocence and my my self-esteem, my sense of my delicate sense of self, that I was weeping and weeping and in despair, and I was trying to put my clothes back on, and I kept I didn't know how to dress myself yet, and I kept putting both legs in one pant hole of my underwear, and I. I kept falling down, and it was a horrible, horrible, humiliating experience. And at some point then, there was a window at one end of the room. All of this ha happening in the split second, this recapturing this. And uh, a light coming in the window, and I heard my name being called, Bobby, Bobby. And I looked up, and my, the face of my father's friend was looking in the window, and I had been found. I knew that I had been saved in some way, and I, it was really the beginning of uh, a spiritual life because I, I had a sense of being worthy of being saved immediately. So Ida, my teacher, my, my, my healer, didn't deal with things like that uh, at the time, and so I called home and spoke with my family, and as it turned out, all the memory was exactly what had happened. At the age of four, I'd have been abducted, abducted, kidnapped off the street, and missing for several days. And uh, there had been a search party, and my father's friend had found me in that shack. I had relived that experience that had been buried in the tissues of my body for from that time on. My family told me that uh, they never knew what had actually happened because I stopped speaking. I didn't speak for a year to anyone. And then they decided that this is the sort of thing best be forgotten about. That's what people did with those things in those days. And uh, it was never spoken of. And I never thought it was just lost in time and memory. But that experience with her probing into my flesh and releasing that part of the past was an opening into the emotional life that added to the opening and rage was my introduction to being alive as a human being, really. And you can imagine that what followed from all of that was years and years of... Um, psychological work, uh, trying to, it took several years to really understand that that had happened, and then all of the 
anger and the grief and the fear of people that uh, resulted from that. All of that had to be worked with over time, over time, over time. And there came a point when it became quite clear that that level of, of emotional opening can only be accepted and surrendered to in a meditative practice. It was no longer psychology had no, nothing to offer for me after a while. And it was at that point that I met a great teacher, traveled to India, and began my meditation practice. That was in 1968, 9. And uh, the meditation practice was for me the pathway to growth that didn't come with any kind of doubt. And uh, as soon as I started practicing, it was that I had, I had come home. I had some way to deal with all of that information, all of that material. So I, I meditated a lot every day for years and years and years. And in that process, began to appreciate more and more the life of emotion, the life of the spirit, the energetic movement in the body that comes with concepts and memories. And the two of them together being such a huge component of human life. I became a, and an am now uh, very grateful for encounters with feeling. They no, they no longer are frightening to me. I'm, I, I see all of that as a bounty, gift for all of us. So I think the reason I'm really telling you this is to encourage you when you're sitting in practice in this retreat and feelings come up, no matter what they are, open to them. Receive them with gratitude. Don't run from your emotion. Don't run from your pain. Don't run from that which is dark or that which is frightening. Open to all of it because therein, in that experience, lies the uh, direct contact with true self who you really are, prior to that formation of that point of view of separateness that I spoke about, beyond it, it's an opening into true self that has nothing to do with thought or linear mind but a lot to do with the heart. And the loving mind. So, over the years my practice has become more and more listening to the body. Listening into silence. 
listening carefully to the wee small voice within. I savor uh, solitude and silence because it's then that I'm more likely to remember to listen for the movement of what? Whatever it is, spirit, life itself, the life force. And if while you're sitting and attending to the breath, you begin to be fascinated by hearing, listen inside as well as outside. And if you start to hear some far-off sound, a buzzing, or kind of a shh kind of sound, attend to it. Because it's real. And it is not involved with thought. It lifts you out of linear prison. Lifts you out of compulsive thinking and our our addiction to concepts. One poem. I have a friend um, who has been poet laureate of the United States several times, and his name is Billy Collins. You may be familiar with his work. And I've had long conversations with him about listening into the silence, and he's become very interested in it. And he wrote me a poem. And uh, it's an incredibly beautiful poem. You'll, you'll, you'll see his genius in it. It's called The Great American Poem. The Great American Poem. Billy Collins, unpublished. If this were a novel, it would begin with a character, a man alone on a southbound train, or a young girl on a swing by a farmhouse. And as the pages turned, you would be told that it was morning or the dead of night, and I, the narrator, would describe for you the miscellaneous clouds over the farmhouse and what the man was wearing on the train right down to his red tartan scarf and the hat he tossed onto the rack above his head as well as the cows sliding past the window. Eventually, one can only read so fast, you would learn either that the train was bearing the man back to the place of his birth or that he was headed into the vast unknown. And you might just tolerate all of this as you waited patiently for shots to ring out in a ravine where the man was hiding or for a tall raven-haired woman to appear in a doorway. But this is a poem, <laughs> not a novel. And the only characters here are you and I, alone in an imaginary room which will disappear after a few more lines, leaving us no time to point guns at one another or toss all our clothes into a roaring fireplace. 
I ask you, who needs the man on the train and who cares what his black valise contains? We have something better than all this turbulence lurching toward some ruinous conclusion. I mean the sound that we will hear as soon as I stop writing and put down this pen. I once heard someone compare it to the sound of crickets in a field of wheat, or more faintly, just the wind over that field, stirring things that we will never see. Pretty good, huh? Thank you very much for your attention and your indulgence in all this confession. Listening. This is a great place to do it. walking period. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.